All right, how do I start every sermon? TV show reference, right? I mean, my brother texted me last night. Hey, I've been listening to your sermons. You, got, you, need, you need to step up your TV reference game. That was what he said. All right, so way back in the day, uh, I was a beta tester for Hulu. Like when Hulu was not public yet, I, I forget how it happened. I heard about it and I was like, streaming, that sounds genius. I'm one in on it. And so I went and um, it was, the app was garbage. It crashed constantly. And um, there was only one commercial <laughs> that played five times, like five slots it would play. And then the next time commercials came up, it'd play. Um, it was a Tide commercial and I'll never forget it. <laughs> uh, anyway, so then the app would crash and I'd have to go, uh, go into the, you know, there's like a... Um, a uh, online thing. The app crashed again. Here's what I was watching. Here, you know, there's like a little thing I had to do. Um, well, anyway, there was only like two TV shows, too, a couple of TV shows. And the reason I was a beta tester is because they had this one TV show I used to really like called The Practice. Does anybody know what's The Practice? Anybody know this show? Yeah, one. Woohoo! Uh, from the 90s. I think the 90s, early 2000s. Um, uh, so this show was about uh, defense attorneys. Right? So it's like law and order from the other side. So in law and order, the defense attorneys, every time the defense attorney walks in, they're like, oh, who opened a garbage can? It smells in here. You know, like the law defense attorneys are like evil in law and order. And then you watch the practice and it's the DAs are evil, you know, and it's, <laughs> so it's kind of two sides. But anyway, um, while I was uh, watching it, I did what we all do when we watch TV shows. We imagine ourselves in that world. I would think about defense attorneys. I mean, they had some wildly outrageous plot lines, but in general, you know, you get an idea of some of the dilemmas facing defense attorneys. And I was just thinking, could I be a defense attorney like this? Like, I have a friend who works, um, he's a defense attorney. He um, uh, worked for years for the public defender's office here in San Francisco. Um, you know, and I'm thinking, like, man, could I do that? Could I defend guilty people? Because that's most of what they do is, Defending guilty people and making it... So, I think I could. I think I could handle that part. Um, because even if somebody's guilty, our society has gotten together and said, it is very important that we are able to prove that they're guilty. We don't put people in jail because we think they may have done it, right? As a society, it's better if we like, have a very high bar. And part of that bar is having defense attorneys who defend guilty people, um, I think I'd be okay with that. I think I would have more trouble defending the guy that you think probably didn't do it. Can you imagine the pressure of that? You know how horrible jail is? I watch all those shows on MSNBC, locked up, raw, you know, and it's like, oh, jail is not fun, <laughs> right? This is brutal. Can you imagine if you had a client and you're a defense attorney that you think he really didn't do it, right? This guy is getting railroaded. The stakes are so high in that situation. If I don't put on the best defense, this guy's going to go to jail. You know, it, it's serious stuff. And uh, there were times in the show, in the practice, where an innocent person went to jail, and it was gut-wrenching. But even more gut-wrenching than some dumb uh, drama on ABC from 25 years ago uh, is when this happens in real life. Right? The, so the reason my friend became a defense attorney is because he, during law school, he went to, I think it was Mississippi, and he did death row appeals as like an intern. And what he realized was basically in Mississippi, if you commit this crime and you're African-American, you get the death penalty. And if you're white, you get life in prison. And so he worked. He didn't realize that. And he got out there and he worked. And he was like, man, this is tough, you know. Um, and so he saw this, like some brokenness in the system. Um, but even more than that, it's like, what if you're innocent and you're on death row? How bad would that be? And that's like, you know, the movie um, uh, with Michael B. Jordan and, uh, yeah, Jamie Foxx, Just Mercy. And it's based off the book by Brian Stevenson. You read that book, right? Yeah. Um, Steven is a fan of that book. And in the movie, um, Michael Jordan, Michael B. Jordan, can't, uh, he's not Michael Jordan. Uh, boy, what an unfortunate name, too, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, anyway. Man, that'd be crazy being named the same as this. You're Bill Clinton? I'm the other Bill Clinton, you know. Um, anyway, so Michael B. Jordan uh, plays Stevenson. He's in Alabama defending a death row inmate uh, played by Jamie Foxx. Uh, the guy's name was, I wrote it down, Walter McMillan. And McMillan, this is a true story, was an African-American man who was clearly innocent and has been 
unjustly convicted of murder and in basically a very quick sham trial and then given the death penalty. And the story goes through sort of the appeals process and there's one part where you think, okay, this is obviously going to get overturned and then it doesn't and has to go to the next court. And it's like, it's a gut-wrenching story. Um, eventually, knowing the story going in, eventually this guy gets out, <laughs> right? But even that, watching this movie, it was, it's a great movie. Um, the reason it's gut-wrenching is because God is a God of justice and because every human being, believer, not believe, we're made in his image. And what that means is we have this built-in sense of justice within all of us, right? And so we can suppress that. And there are people in history who have been very evil and have done all kinds of messed up things to push that sense down. But in everybody, there is a sense of injustice. And when we see it, it bothers us, right? When we see an innocent person convicted, it hits us at a deep level, right? It's not just like, oh, that's kind of a bummer. It bugs us, right? It bothers us. Today, what we're going to read about is the ultimate example of an innocent man and a sham trial, right? The trial and conviction of Jesus, we're reading through the book of Luke, and this is the part we're at. The trial and conviction of Jesus was absolutely unjust and wicked, um, and it's even worse than the just mercy story. Because that, here's why. Everybody who's, wrongly, who's been wrongly convicted in court, they can stand up and they can say, I didn't commit this crime, Right? the guy from Just Mercy, he could stand up and say, I didn't commit this crime. But they can never stand up and say, I've literally never done anything wrong. Nobody can ever say that I'm completely innocent except for one man, right? The Gospels tell us about the one truly innocent man, Jesus Christ, the man who was God at the same time, the man who lived the perfect life that none of us have ever done. He followed every letter of the Old Testament law, right? He was the true, like the fulfillment of all those laws that God gave his people. And uh, he succeeded where we all failed. He lived up to the glory of God where we all have fallen short. And still, he was railroaded and sentenced to die. And so today, what we're going to read, you know, we're reading through the book of Luke. Last week, we talked about um, the betrayal, and we talked about Peter and Judas, and we compared those two. Now, we're going to talk about the trial. Next week, we're going to read about the death of Jesus. And then uh, we're going to leave it there until the new year. So we'll come back and finish Luke in the new year. So let's start. We're in the book of Luke. Um, we'll have the slides up there if you want to follow along. Now, uh, this is chapter 22, verse 63. Now, the men who were holding Jesus in custody, so that's where we left Jesus last week, um, were mocking him as they beat him. And they blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. So the men who were holding Jesus in... So if you remember, Peter had just seen Jesus. That's where we left it last week. He denied him three times. He looked over wherever they were. He saw Jesus. They're in the high priest's house at the courtyard. So this is like what's happening here is Jesus now is being mocked and beaten up by um, what's like the, the high priest's guard, the temple guard. This is like the ancient version of the secret service, right? So these guys are kind of like elite Jewish soldiers. And they're playing a game with Jesus. They put a blindfold on him uh, and, you know, tied it around his eyes. And one of them would punch him in the face or something. And then they would laugh. Oh, ha, ha, you, you know, you're the prophet. Who was it that hit you? Do you see the irony of this? What we've read all through the book of Luke is the, the vast supernatural knowledge and power of Jesus, the God-man. The irony is, I think he knew, right? Boom, who hit you? It was Jeff, right? He knew, like, but he sat silent. He didn't say, right? So here he is. And so what's going to happen? These next two weeks are going to be brutal, by the way. Uh, I already wrote the one for next week. This is going to get worse and worse and worse as we go along. So let's keep going. Verse um, 66. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, um, I, I want to just point out kind of a quick sidebar, real quick. Um, did anybody see the movie? What was that movie where Jesus dies, the Mel Gibson one? Passion of the Christ. Okay, I saw it in theaters a long time ago once, and I had to sit in the front row. So it was like, hey, tell me if anything happens over there. And then I never really saw it again, and I don't kind of remember it. So I could be wrong, with, but the, the narrative that came out of that movie was like, it was very anti-Semitic. I think he made like the, the chief priest's guys were like really kind of weird looking and angry and everything. 
Um, I think it's important to stop here and say that like through church history, there's been like a ton of anti-Semitism because of these two passages. This is what we're going to read next week. But in context, that doesn't make any sense because what's happening here is in the Jewish world. Jesus was Jewish. The disciples were Jewish. The chief priests were Jewish. The temple guards were Jewish. The women who followed Jesus, the disciples were Jewish. Jesus, you know, it's kind of odd for, you know, Gentiles in the Middle Ages to get all mad at Jewish people. Oh, you guys killed Jesus. Well, everybody in the story was Jewish. This is a Jewish text, you know. Anyway, so when we read about this, we got to keep in mind kind of what's going on here. This is the first century Jewish world, and these chief priests were the folks who were in charge of the religion, right? They were very important people. Um, And so what they do is they get Jesus together, and they have this illegal trial very early in the morning. Now, there's been a lot of debate by like the very smart scholars who sit in their offices thousands of miles apart and email each other papers. You're wrong about this minor point that nobody's ever going to think about, you know? But anyway, there's, um, I mean, that stuff is actually helpful when I'm studying, but um, there's been a lot of debate by those very smart dudes about what's going on here. Using some later Jewish material, um, it seems like a lot of this trial broke the rules of how the Sanhedrin was supposed to have a trial. The problem with that is all the rules that we know about how the Sanhedrin is supposed to have a trial is like from way later than this. So how much of that can we read back in? We don't know. But here are some of those rules, right? They're not allowed to have a trial during any sort of a feast week. You know, so Pentecost, the Feast of Booths, uh, this is the Passover, Feast of Tabernacles. You know, like any of these, these the, you know, the Jewish feasts, they're not allowed to have a trial then. Um, in the trial, Jesus has no lawyer, no formal defense. Um, verdicts were supposed to take two days. You weren't allowed to do a verdict right away. And the reason was uh, the rabbis, and this is actually a wise idea, the rabbis said you need to give uh, mercy a time to grow. Right? You got to let some time for mercy to happen in your heart before you sentence somebody to death. Um, they could only try, hold trials in the Sanhedrin hall. This trial happens all over the place, um, as we'll read. You need two witnesses who agree Um, And Luke doesn't really get into this, but in the other Gospels, they do. They brought a bunch of witnesses up, and they contradicted each other, and none of the witnesses sort of, he said he would tear the temple down. The other guy's, ah, that's not exactly what he's, you know, they didn't, they didn't, um, uh, they didn't line up. And then the other thing is false witnesses, like if you showed up at a trial and you committed perjury, that was punishable by death in this culture. And all these false witnesses show up and lie about Jesus, and nobody seems to care, right? Because they're not after justice, they're after getting Jesus, right? So none of that stuff was really followed here. How much of that was already part of the culture in the first century, in the 30s AD? We don't know. Um, but I'm guessing at least a bunch of it was, right? And so this wasn't a real trial. This was a kangaroo court. Do you know what kangaroo court is? You know that phrase? Uh, it just means like a, like a quick sham trial. We got to get this over with. Um, we used to do kangaroo court in sports. So like when I was in high school, if you scored a goal on your own side. Afterwards, the next practice, we had kangaroo court where everybody got to decide your punishment. But the idea was, you're already guilty. We're just going to see, you know, how many laps we're going to make you run at this public park in your underwear, that kind of thing, right? So (laughs) kangaroo court, the idea is like, this is kind of just a bunch of turkeys in a sham trial. All right, let's keep going. Uh, Verse 67, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you won't believe me. And if I ask, you're not gonna, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they said, are you the Son of God then? He said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it from our own lips. So Luke, like I said, he skips the bit about the witnesses. Um, in the other Gospels, they kind of talk about this, that they brought in all these witnesses to contradict each other. And eventually they just get to it. Fine, let's just ask him, are you the Christ? Are you the son of God? They're going to bring Pilate, as we'll see in a minute, a bunch of other trumped-up charges. But this is the real charge. Are you claiming to be the Messiah? And his answer is, eh, you're not going to believe me anyway, even if I tell you. And pretty soon, by the way, I'm going to be seated at the right hand of God the Father. So the problem here that they have is they want a guilty verdict, right? They think he's guilty. They think this is, in their estimation, they think that this is blasphemy. Um, The problem they have is, though, um, the Romans were the ones in charge. They were the occupying force of Israel. And they came in, and after a while, um, uh, they said to the Jewish leaders, you guys are no longer allowed to execute people. 
And so to execute Jesus, they need the Romans, uh, they need the Romans' approval, right? So if they bring the charge of, well, he says he's the Messiah, the Romans are going to go, I don't care about that, right? That even happens with Paul at one point. I forget what city it is he's in, and they bring up the charges, you know, wow, he's saying all this stuff about, um, about our God, that our God is Jesus and all this, and the Roman guy goes, I don't care, and then he beats out the guy who brought the charges, <laughs> right? Because the Romans cared about Rome, right? And this doesn't really affect them. So, keep going. The whole company arose and brought him before Pilate. So Pilate is very famous only for this. <laughs> um, he's the Roman governor of Judea. He's the fifth Roman governor at this point. Um, I'll tell you about him, though. We actually know a lot about this guy from history. And uh, in a letter from Herod Agrippa to the emperor Caligula, you know that guy Caligula, the nut job? Um, he calls him, he call, they're, they're gossiping about Pilate. And Agrippa complaining about Pilate says he's inflexible, merciless, and obstinate, <laughs> right? He, he, he didn't have a great reputation. One time, um, he caused a riot by ignoring a bunch of the religious Jewish law as the Roman governor, um, and he brought a bunch of images, like those poles with the flags and the pictures of Caesar, like into the city of Jerusalem, where the other governors had not done that to, like, not cause riots, and it caused a riot. Um, he, uh, he raided the temple treasury, uh, to build a bunch of public works. So like um, aqueducts and that sort of stuff. That stuff's great. But like, yeah, I mean, like I have a lot of great stuff at home, right? Like I have a TV. And, uh, but if all of a sudden I was taking church money and buying TVs with it, we'd be in trouble, right? There would be some issues. This is what Pilate did. He raided the temple treasury for some of this public works. Everybody was furious. He was eventually removed um, because he went over the top and he had his cavalry kill a bunch of Samaritans. And eventually Rome was like, this guy's too violent for us, <laughs> right? And so when Rome says this guy is too much, um, and after he lost his status and position, he eventually sort of faded into nothing and took his own life, right? That's Pilate. He was brutal. He was selfish. He was insensitive uh, and careless, and he was a terrible leader. He was widely unpopular, both with the people that he was the governor of in Judea, the Jewish folks, hated his guts, and the Roman people pretty much hated his guts, right? He was an idiot. But they needed this guy's, this idiot's okay if they're going to execute Jesus. So they take him to Pilate, verse 2, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is the Christ, a king. All right, so three charges. He's misleading the nation. That's really vague. What? About something? Is there some specifics here? Two, uh, he's forbidding us to pay taxes. Literally, Jesus said the opposite. <laughs> you remember this? Should we give taxes to Rome? Give to Caesar what's Caesar and give to God what's God's. So it, we won't get into that whole debate again and what he meant by that. But literally, Jesus said the opposite. They were the ones trying to say we shouldn't pay taxes. And then the third charge is he's claiming to be a king. This is the one that's kind of true, sort of, right? He, is he claiming? We'll get into this, right? But multiple chances, not in the way that they're trying to make it out to be. Multiple chances Jesus had a chance to be a king. And he didn't do it. Like after the feeding of the 5,000. I think it's in the book of John when that happens. There's like a little verse that's like, then they tried to make him king. So Jesus like, you know, hightailed it out of there. I'm paraphrasing, right? Jesus ran from him. He, he wasn't trying to be a political king in the way that they were accusing him. And so Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. You see what Pilate does? He ignores the first two charges. I don't believe you about this vague, he's misleading the nation. I don't believe you about the taxes. Some, I don't know, maybe somebody standing there was like, uh, I was at the temple the other day, and that's not what he said. And Pilate's like, okay, I don't know what happened. Pilate ignores those first two charges, and he flat out asks him, are you the king of the Jews? John's conversation between Pilate and Jesus is a lot longer. I want to read it to you. So Pilate, he entered his headquarters uh, and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? So Pilate takes Jesus aside and asks him, and Jesus says, do you say this of your own accord, or did others uh, say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. And then Pilate answered him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, do you say that I'm a king? 
For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone um, who, uh, sorry, wait, I lost my place. Everyone who listens, am I at the right place? My notes disappeared. Uh, anyway, no, no, sorry, that's where I'm going to stop. That's why my notes are gone. So Jesus basically tells Pilate, the whole point of reading that is, Jesus says, my kingdom's not of this world. I'm not a political threat to Rome, right? When I'm talking about I'm the king, I'm talking about the kingdom of God in this spiritual sense, right? And so however this situation played out, Pilate got it. Pilate kind of looked through and he saw what was going on. So verse four, he says to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no guilt in this man, but they were urgent. He stirs up the people teaching throughout all of Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. So Jesus now, I mean, sorry, Luke now is making this point. Jesus is innocent. Pilate isn't a particularly bright guy, okay? He's not a just person. He doesn't care about the Jewish people. He's an ambitious turkey, right? And even he looks at what's going on and says, I don't think this guy did anything. I think what's going on here is some sort of power grab, some sort of religious jealousy, but the, the chief priests and these guys who were trying to get him, they were urgent. Time is not their friend because the Jewish crowds that are in Jerusalem for Passover, they like Jesus. And the longer that this plays out, the more chance that they're going to lose this battle. So they need, to, like, they need this to happen and they need it to happen quick. So they, they ramp up the charges. He's been stirring up people all over and even in Galilee. And then Pilate goes, wait, Galilee? <laughs> So Pilate heard this, and he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. So here goes another idiot, Herod Antipas. Um, remember when he's the guy, this is the guy who got mad, uh, arrested John the Baptist, because John the Baptist had called him out for uh, having an affair with his brother's wife and then marrying her. So he has John in jail, and then uh, Herod is not a great guy. His teenage daughter come in, comes and does, the kids are in the other room, right? Comes and does a strip tease for Herod and his friends, right? His stepdaughter. Or, and Herod's like, hey, that was great. I'll give you anything you want. And she goes, cool, kill John the Baptist. So he does, right? This is, this, this is the same guy. And what happens is Pilate goes, oh, Jesus is from Galilee? I'm going to send him to Herod. Do you see what's going on here? <clears throat> um, Kathy, who's not here today, my mother-in-law, she's at my house a lot. She's a sermon illustration today. <laughs> uh, she's a compulsive cleaner. You know, Kathy, I love it. Because she's at my house working with Melissa all day. And uh, she cleans up constantly, and I love it. And so sometimes I joke to Melissa, and Melissa goes, John, don't say that. And I joke, and I go, I'm just going to leave this here tomorrow. Kathy will get it. If I leave it out, like, she can't not let it be. And so this will be, you know, Kathy will take care of it. This is exactly Pilate's thinking. I'm just going to let Herod deal with this. He, he sees this political hornet's nest. He's like, I don't want to deal with it. So I'm just going to leave it out and Kathy will clean it up. I'm going to send him over to Herod and maybe Herod will figure this out. So when Herod saw Jesus, he was glad for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Herod he knows about Jesus, and he's heard about the feeding of the 5,000 and all the miracles and everything. And so he wants a magic show. He wants, come and reproduce the bread. Come and heal somebody. Come and walk on water, whatever it is. Um, has Jesus ever done a miracle on demand like this in the entire Gospels? No. The one time they ask him, hey, show us some signs. He says, you faithless generation. <laughs> you get nothing but the sign of Jonah. That's what he said. You know, anyway. It's not going to happen, right? And so they questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. So Herod questions him, same thing as Pilate, probably goes through the same round of questions, maybe some theological questions too, because Herod knew more about the, um, the Jewish faith, and nothing. And then the chief priests, it says they vehemently accuse him. They're keeping up the full court press. They are really trying to get Jesus. And what happens is it says that Jesus stays quiet. Um, in the, the great uh, chapter from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 53, it says this, um, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Now this is sort of a, like a vague prophecy about Jesus. It doesn't mean I don't think that Jesus stayed silent the entire time during the trial because he obviously didn't. He talked to Pilate. I'm the king of the Jews, you know, 
my kingdom's not of this world, you know, all that stuff. Um, but what it meant is, I think Jesus, if he had started opening his mouth and talking and debating, he would have gotten out of this. Right? You remember how he schooled everybody in the temple like a couple of days before this? Right? He's a pretty bright guy, this Jesus. He could have gotten himself out. And the idea here is when, when the opportunity arose to get himself out of this mess, he didn't speak. He sat there and he stayed quiet. So verse 11, And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. And arraying him in splendor, uh, they array, then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for they had been at enmity with each other. So they make fun of him, they mock him, they put a king's uniform on him, they, this purple robe, we're told, the color of royalty, right? They're, they're completely mocking him. And then he sends him back to Pilate. So Herod was a pretend king with an inferiority complex. And most likely what happened in this uh, relationship was Pilate never really respected Herod, right? He didn't think he was anything special. But by sending, I think this is what happened. I think by sending Jesus to Herod, Herod goes, oh, Pilate thinks I'm important, right? And they sort of became friends after that. Um, But he sends him back, same thing. Even this idiot, not guilty. (laughs) Okay, keep going. So verse 13, then Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people He said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. After examining him before you, behold, I I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. So Pilate and Herod, right? Luke is being very clear in the way that he's organized this part of the text. Pilate is not a good person. All through history, we know that. Herod might be even worse, right? These, are, these two clowns examine Jesus, and even these guys can come to the conclusion he's completely innocent. He didn't do anything. So what Pilate says, he gets in front of the crowd, and he pleads his case. He says, I'm going to let him go. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to punish him and release him. Now, to our Western sensibilities, this is very odd, right? He didn't do anything, so I'll just punish him and let him go. The Romans kind of had this thing that really doesn't make a lot of sense, especially to us. But basically, like, even if you were innocent, you just wasted everybody's time. (laughs) And so we're going to whip you or flog you or whatever it is. And so I think that what Pilate thought was, I can't let him go without any punishment. People will be mad. This crowd is getting rowdy. So what I got to do is I got to flog him, right? So John 19, 1. So Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Now, flogging was brutal. Flogging was brutal. We don't do anything like this anymore. Um, like, I mean, I remember when I was a kid, do you remember when they caned that kid in Singapore? And everybody in America was like, ooh. Right? So that was like a one out of 10 compared to what's going on here. So what flogging was, was they took a whip. It was called the cat of nine tails. So it was like a whip with these long whips and had nine whips on it. And then what they would do is if they were being especially brutal, is they would take little pieces of glass and pottery and bone, like animal bones, and they would break it up and they would tie it into the end. So the idea is this like thing would come, you know, this, this whip would come and it would hit you and the, like, the pottery would like stick in you, right? And it would pull it. And so um, they, they had different ways of doing it. Sometimes the main way though is they would take your hands like this and they would tie you up so that the whips would come around and they would hit you in the chest and it would pull. Right? So by the time you had 30 or 40 of these lashes, right? the Romans didn't do the Jewish thing where it was like 39 is the max. Right? The Romans would just go for it. And so this is, I think, what happens um, to Jesus here, is Pilate takes Jesus, the truly innocent guy, right? the most gentle and humble person who's ever lived, this wildly popular religious teacher, takes him, and he has him flogged in this way, thinking maybe this will appease the crowds. And so Jesus now is in this royal purple robe, and a lot of people died from the flogging. You can imagine the amount of blood loss that happened with something like this. And so verse 2 of John 19, the soldiers, uh, oh wait, sorry, the soldier is on the different slide. Uh, The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and they arrayed him in a purple robe. This is being extra mean. They took a crown of, there was a couple of different, again, this is one of the things the scholars debate about, and it's like, who cares? But like, what was the plant from the crown of thorns? Because there's like, what plants were in Jerusalem? There's a bunch. Anyway, like, you know, thorns. 
And they take this crown and they put it together and they, they wrap it around and, and they jam it into Jesus' head as a joke. Ha ha, this is really funny. This guy thinks he's a king and now he's flogged. He's in this purple robe. We've got this crown of thorns tearing into his head. Um, let's see. Oh, wait, sorry. Um, and then verse 3, they came to him and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. So they're punching him. Pilate went out against them went out again and said to them, that's the crowd, he said, see, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out. So now Pilate presents Jesus in front of the crowd, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, having been flogged, so just completely wrecked. And Pilate says, um, Pilate says, behold the man, which is a way to say, look, he didn't even do anything. This is what Pilate says. And look how brutal we've been. The idea Pilate is thinking is this should be enough to save him from crucifixion. Um, and then if we're, we, okay, I'm not going to get into this now, but we read the ESV, right? And <clears throat> sometimes there's a few verses that as textual scholars work on this stuff, they go, I don't think that verse was in the original Bible. So we, we put them off to the side. Um, this is one of those verses, but it's in the New King James. For it was necessary for him to release one of them at the feast. That's verse 17. It's not really in the Bible probably, but um, the idea is in the other Gospels that Pilate or whoever was the governor in Judea at this time, you know, um, at these times, had this tradition where at Passover they would release a prisoner like to show, look, Rome, we're a people of mercy, you know, kind of a thing. Forget the couple thousand people we just crucified when you guys were walking in here, but here's this one guy, you know, and so that's what happens. Um, Nothing else is known about this custom except from the Gospels, you know. Um, but the plan is, he thinks, okay, I have Jesus, who this, the crowds love this guy, and here he is, he's flogged, and he's beaten up, and, um, uh, you know, the book of Isaiah, I think it is, talks about this, that, like, Jesus would be beaten up so bad that he'd be unrecognizable, right? Like, they really let him have it. And this guy, who's clearly guilty, and if I put these two guys up, the crowd will make the right choice. Of course they don't. Uh, Verse 18, but they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Okay, so here's the question though. How did the crowd from Sunday, Hosanna in the highest, right, who showed up with their, throwing their jackets on the floor so Jesus is, you know, the donkey could go by or whatever, right? How is this crowd who's basically worshiping Jesus on Sunday turn and have him crucified on Friday? Because what have we read this whole week is he's still wildly popular. And this is the reason they arrest him at night, because they, they're afraid of the crowds. Well, I think some, some cultural context here and understanding what was happening in Jerusalem during this week is helpful. Remember, Passover was the night before. So everybody had just gotten together and eaten the biggest meal of the year. Um, so we Westerners, we treat every meal like it's Thanksgiving, right? And we stuff ourselves and We eat a lot. Most people back then didn't have that luxury, and they didn't even eat meat very often. And so only a couple of times a year would they get to eat lamb like this, right? And so here they are. They're having the biggest meal of the year, and the Passover celebration has this, has four cups of wine that you drink as you kind of go along, right? So everybody's been drinking. They're all stuffed like right after Thanksgiving. This is why the disciples couldn't stay awake, you know? (laughs) I mean, Anyway, so the arrest happens in the middle of the night after the entire city has crashed. Nobody's out in the streets. Everybody's at home with their families celebrating the Passover. Peter's denial and all that stuff probably happens at about 5 a.m. The trial happens very early in the morning before people had gotten up and started leaving their homes, right? This is the day after Christmas, kind of, you know, like everybody everybody is still full and they're spending time with family. The crucifixion happened at 9 a.m., But you know what else happened at 9 a.m.? Down the road was the first temple service of the day. Started at 9 a.m. at the exact time that the crucifixion started. And so here's the thing. Nobody had Twitter. Nobody was tweeting, hey, they arrested Jesus. News didn't travel very fast. It had to travel by word of mouth. And so the question, how did the crowd turn? They didn't. It's not the same people right? The, the big giant crowd that was there at the beginning of the week, they're going to church. I mean, they're going to temple service, and they're going, you know, and their synagogues meeting all over town. And um, so, who is this crowd, right? It's probably people who 
are in the sphere of influence of the 70 something members, you know, the 70 members of the Sanhedrin. If they start getting together all their household, uh, you know, well, slaves is the word, right? Bond servants, whatever. They start getting their household slaves together and the soldiers and all these people. This is the group that's in front of Jesus. And we learn later on in Luke that when the crucifixion was over, the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. Eventually, the main crowd, the big group of people in Jerusalem, did find out what happened. But by the time they showed up, it was too late. Jesus had already been crucified. And when they figure out what's going on, they're very, the crowd, the city is very upset. So anyway, who's this crowd then? They're yelling, this crowd of basically planted kind of people, they're yelling for Barabbas. Who was he? He was a man who had been thrown in prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. So Luke is just very clear, right? <laughs> Not on suspicion of, right? This guy was, you know, had killed people um, and tried to start. In, the, the insurrection part makes me think he was like a anti-Roman zealot, like a freedom fighter kind of thing. He was, they, the zealots had these people who would go into a big crowd where the Romans had soldiers. Um, I mean, the Romans, remember, they were a brutal occupying force, right? And so these zealots, we got to fight this with force. And so they had these little daggers, and they would go and they would stab the Romans, and they would drop it and then disappear through the crowd. So he was probably one of these guys. We don't know for sure. Um, But Pilate, so Pilate addressed him once more, desiring to release Jesus. Do you see Luke? He is doing it again. Pilate is trying to get Jesus off the hook. Verse 21, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And a third time he said, why? What evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. So the crowd is not demanding justice. They're demanding his death. And again, Pilate, what, what has he done? Luke is making it very clear. Pilate knows what's going on. He knows the jealousy. He knows about Jesus. He's figured out what's going on. Matthew gives us another layer, though, of why Pilate was so reluctant. For he knew that it was out of envy they had delivered him up. So he just says it, right? Pilate knew. Uh, Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with this righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now, remember, first century people were very, like, they believe, like, our world is very um, scientific and secular, and we don't believe in the supernatural world as like a general, you know. um, In this world, everybody did. And so she had this dream, whatever it was, whether it was real or not, we have no idea. But she sent word to Pilate, hey, don't mess with this guy. I had a dream about him. So Pilate now is worried about something else spiritual is going on here that he doesn't understand. My wife doesn't want me to do this. And then verse 23, but they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He caves, right? Pilate really cared about doing the right thing until he didn't. (laughs) And now that point has been reached. You see, what Pilate really cared about was his job. That's his ultimate deep-down motivation, was his career and his ambition. He knew the emperor would not put up with more unrest in Judea, right? So what happened was the Roman people conquered a lot of different areas. And everywhere they conquered, people were mostly submissive, and they sort of, you know, took in the Roman way of life. These Jewish people were dope, though. They were like, not having it. (laughs) And uh, they gave Rome all kinds of problems. And they were not submitting, and they were not giving up their faith. And, and you know, so this sort of like constant unrest in Judea, Pilate's job was to keep that down. And he, that's all he's thinking about, is if I don't keep this from turning into a riot, I might lose my job. So what does he do? Matthew tells us, right? Luke doesn't tell us. Bring me a bowl of water. Washes his hands. I wash my hands of this. This is on you. That's what he says. I mean, but is it? <laughs> right? Like, can I just, <laughs> I don't know. I feel like, could a judge do that now? Right? I know you didn't do it, but you're guilty, but here's a sink. Right? <laughs> no, I mean, it's his decision, right? He should have done the right thing. Verse 25. He released the man who had been thrown in prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. So one final contrast Luke makes, one more time. He says, the guilty guy goes free, and the truly innocent man is sent to the cross. Luke actually does this. We'll read these verses next week, but Luke does this two more times too, right? The thief on the cross says about Jesus, the second thief, and we'll talk about this next week. We indeed justly, for we are receiving our due due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. So one of the other guys that's crucified with Jesus says, he didn't do anything. 
And then the centurion. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. Right? So the centurion says he's innocent. And then the crowd goes away upset because they don't think Jesus has done anything wrong. And so that's where we're going to leave it. Next week, we're going to read about the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. Today, we're just talking about the trial. But I mean, you can see the main point of this passage, right? It's pretty obvious. Jesus didn't do it. Jesus is innocent. And Luke goes to great lengths to paint this picture. Even two idiots think he's, uh, he's innocent, right? Even these two clowns, Pilate and Herod, even the thief, the centurion, the crowd. Luke is like, he is like hammering this point home. Jesus truly is innocent. So what's going on here? What's the theological idea behind this? Well, let's place it in the story of all of Scripture, right? We open up the Bible, and what happens? God creates a world and puts Adam and Eve in the garden. And Adam, as sort of the representative of all of humanity, right? Adam and Eve, they eat the apple or apricot or whatever it was. It's probably an apricot. Nobody can resist an apricot. And he eats it. And all of humanity is plunged into sin. And the whole universe is plunged into the fall. And as our representative, you ever think about this? Adam, stupid Adam. If I was there, I wouldn't have eaten it. I think the idea is he's a perfect representation of us. Yeah, you would. <laughs> Might have taken you an extra week, but you would have eaten it, right? We all would have. And so we inherit our sin nature from Adam. Our champion, our representative, he failed. And so on our own now, we're separated from God, kicked out of the garden and out of the, the perfect... Um, the, the perfect relationship that we were created to be in, right, with God, with the Father. And so on our own, we're stuck. We can't get out. So what we need then is a new Adam. What we need is a new champion, right? And Romans talks about this. Therefore, as one trespass, one sin, led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, this is the important part, many were made sinners. So, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So, what the book of Romans says is that Jesus, he's the new Adam, right? This, the obedience and the innocence of Jesus wasn't just a good moral example to follow. It wasn't just Jesus was innocent and he was good and now you should be good too, right? What's going on here is he's acting as our representative, he lived the perfect sinless life that none of us have ever even come close to. And, this is, and then at the cross, switches place with us. This is what theologians call the great exchange. Substitutionary atonement is the theological word. He lived a perfect life. We live a life of sin. We get credit then for his righteousness, and he gets credit for our sin. Um, in 2 Corinthians, it says, for our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became our sin on the cross. And that's what we're going to read about more next week, that Jesus has become sin so that we could become his righteousness. And we're going to talk more about the great exchange oops, and justification and all that next week. Today, though, what I want to finish with is, um, I just want to talk about justice for a bit. And the idea of justice and Jesus, this innocent person being crucified and railroaded. And I want to say two things about it. I want to say this. No, um, when injustice happens, I think what we need to do is preach to ourselves, right? That discipline of talking to ourselves is something we don't do well. But I think in those moments, we need to pause and preach two things to ourselves. I want to give you these two things. I didn't make a slide for it, but you just got to remember. Can you remember two? Okay, here's the first one. Um, the injustice that you're experiencing is less than what you actually deserve. Okay, that's the first point. Perspective is such a crucial part to living in the kingdom of God, right? The gospel says that what you deserve is the horrible wrath of God because you have sinned against him. But what happened on the cross was Jesus took that wrath for you. He stepped in front of, uh, in front of like the wrath of God to protect you. And so for the rest of your life, what's going on is you're playing with house money because you haven't received the wrath that you actually deserve, the judgment that you actually deserve. And living with that perspective is helpful, right? Like imagine um, that you're sick and you have, I don't know, like uh, cancer is pretty bad. You have an incurable cancer. And the doctor says to you, you have a month, 
maybe three weeks to live. We didn't catch it. Nobody knew. So you go to church, and you say, hey, somebody pray for me, and some folks get around, and they pray for you. Uh, this actually happened to a friend of mine. And you go to the doctor, and they're like, uh, you have no cancer, dude. <laughs> right? And he's been alive now 20 years, and he's the only person that's ever survived this like, level of liver cancer that he had, and it's a kind of a baffling thing. But anyway, and he lives with this perspective. He's the guy I'm thinking about <laughs> as I tell this story. Now, imagine this happens to you, right? And you, you're cured of this cancer. This weight is lifted off your shoulders. I thought I was going to be dead in three weeks, really. And now I have years and years to live. Now, next year, you get a cold. How do you treat that cold? Normally, when I get a cold, what does Kayla call it? Man cold, right? Melissa laughing, yeah. Man cold. Anybody else get man colds? It's just me, right? Ah, the whole world is ending and my life is awful and... <laughs> right? But all of a sudden, if you've just been cured from cancer, I don't think you get a man cold anymore, right? That cold gets put into a whole new perspective. After a death scare, what is it? It's just a cold. I said cancer, right? And I avoided it, right? And so in your salvation, it's the same thing, right? You've avoided the biggie. And so you're going to live a life of colds. Injustice and bad things are going to happen to you. It's going to pop up. But what we do is we put those, thing, put those things into perspective, now, the flip side of this is the temptation is to take that idea too far and give the impression that justice is no big deal. That's not what I'm saying, right? What I'm saying is that um, even in the big deal injustice stuff, perspective does help, right? One example is one of my heroes, Corey Tenboom. You know the story of Corey Tenboom? Uh, was she Polish, maybe? I don't remember. Anyway, something. And she was alive in the reign of Nazi Germany. And what she did was she took a whole bunch of Jewish folks and she hid them in the back of her house. She built this like secret room and all this stuff. The book's called The Hiding Place if you ever want to read it. And she totally got busted. She got ratted out. Somebody ratted her out. Can you believe this? Thrown into a concentration camp with her sister who died in the concentration camp. And she wrote a book about how awful, I mean, this is one of the worst things that could ever happen to a person, right? And she's living through it. And um, she came out of it with a joyful, hopeful heart. Her sister just died. A bunch of her friends had died. She had lost a bunch of weight to the point where any, the story is amazing. She ended up forgiving and meeting one of the concentration camp guards. In this, and she talks about how hard that was and everything. But anyway, the, her sister is actually, I forget her name. I should learn her name. I haven't read the book in years. But her sister is one of my heroes. Um, because the whole time... Corey Tenboom writing this book was very honest. She was like, look, I had a hard time and I didn't handle this very well, but my sister was amazing. And in the concentration camp, she was joyful and she was singing songs to the Lord and she was telling people about Jesus and she was praying and holding little church services. And um, the example I'll never forget was they, they were just fleas everywhere. And so at one point her sister prayed, Lord, I don't know what you're doing, but I thank you for these fleas. And everybody was like, What? These fleas are ruining our lives. I mean, it's terrible, right? And then later on, they found out that the guards were so afraid of the fleas, they didn't come up to the dorm area, and that's why they were able to have Bible studies and, like, you know, able to spend time away from the guards, right? So anyway, um, perspective helps, but I don't want you to get the impression that there's no, like, injustice is no big deal. It is. What happened to Corey Tamboom and her sister and everybody it was terrible, and here's the second point that I think if you read The Hiding Place, she gets across really well too. I can't recommend this book highly enough, by the way. It's like one of my favorite books of all time. Um, here's the second idea, is that Jesus gets your pain, right? We don't serve a Lord who stands on the outside and looks in at the bad things that happen to us and goes, wow, that looks like a real bummer. That's not the way it works. We serve a Lord who endured the greatest injustice of all time, He's been through it, but worse than we have. And so he gets you. He understands your pain, right? This verse in Isaiah, he was despised and rejected for men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Right? What happened to Jesus was tough. But what the book of Hebrews tells us is because of what happened, he gets us. We have a high priest who sympathizes with us in our weakness, um, now, uh, I have like one or two minutes left. I'm going to like, let's see here. 
There we go. That's how I'll know on the recording where to stop it. I'm going to stop the recording here, okay, because this next part I don't want on the internet, okay? I'm going to talk about fostering a little bit. That's why I don't want it on the internet. If they look me up, I don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> um, fostering is really hard. You know, we talk about how great it is, but every time we tell people, like the couple people we've convinced to become foster parents, we tell them, look, it's the hardest thing you're ever going to do, and you should do it anyway. <laughs> it's terrible, but you should do it anyway. And letting us go, letting heaven go the first time when heaven left, you guys were all with us, right? That was like the hardest thing we've ever done. And it basically ruined us. And people couldn't really understand things like, I mean, I remember when we were at my mom's house and we we're like, hey, can you take the picture off the fridge? Right? Like we can't even right now look at pictures of heavens, of he heavens. I don't even know my own kid's name, heaven. <laughs> uh, but here's the thing. During that time, you guys were all great. And you know, do you guys need anything? Like, people were offering to help. And that's great, but at the same time, like, you don't get it because you've never been through it. So we had other fostering friends who could just sit and be sad with us because they did the same thing two years ago. And they just sit there and they know, I know exactly what you're going through because of how hard it was for us, right? And so that's the Lord. That's the great thing about our faith. He's been through it. He was the truly innocent person who was completely railroaded. And so he gets our pain. And what he does in our times of pain is he sits next to us with our suffering and injustice, and he looks at us and he says, I get it. And I've made a way for you to bring this pain to the Father, to bring this pain and this injustice that might be happening with you, might be happening with somebody else, right, to the Father. Hebrews 4.16. So right after the part where it talks about we have a high priest who understands us. It says this, because he understands us, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. Right? Because Jesus has been through what he went through in this sham kangaroo court trial, right? because they beat him up and they blindfolded him and they flogged him and they crucified him and because he died, because he was the innocent sufferer, he traded places with you what that means is he understands you more than you can know. He gets what you're going through, and he's made a way for you to open up and bring those things to the Father. He's bridged the gap for you. Amen? What an amazing Lord we serve. All right, let's pray.